the story is so central to you that despite any and all evidence otherwise, and even the fact that the story that you're believing in is actively working against you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's actively damaging you and your family. The story is so powerful that none of us are willing to let it go because it's so central to your identity. You know what I mean? So when you ask me about the importance of story, I'm like, well, well, there it is. It's the strength of conspiracy theories. Stories are that powerful, you know? Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. Once again, I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me is Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Good to have you here, sir. Today's interview is a little bit different. We're going to have a little bit less of the front and back end material that we usually do because we have a lengthy interview with Jason Petty, also known as Propaganda, who is an activist, spoken word artist, hip hop artist, does a lot of things. And he's actually an author as well and has a book coming out, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But we really just wanted to hang out the interview and let it breathe a little bit because it's such a good conversation and it kind of illustrates some of the things that we were going for in the conversation with him. So we started off in talking about storytelling and it ranged across a whole wide variety of different kinds of things. And I just really think it's good just for the conversation itself. I mean, sometimes our podcasts will bring to you very technical kinds of things, how-tos, steps that you can take. But other times, really, it's just about the conversation and just about learning from others. And Propaganda was born and raised in Los Angeles, just a different kind of experience than those of us in Indiana, those who are listening in Indiana or maybe even other parts of the country. And it's just a really worthwhile conversation. So we just want to let the conversation be what it is. To be honest, there were times in the conversation where I was uncomfortable. Chances are some of you may get uncomfortable with some parts of the conversation. But that's kind of the point, that as we learn from others, as we learn in relationship with others, it's important for us to listen to ideas, thoughts, and perspectives that are not our own. And in that way, we can grow and we can change. And that's kind of part of storytelling and just part of the thrust of why we wanted to have him on. And Matt, do you want to tell folks how you first got introduced to Propaganda? Yeah, if we're going to jump in the Wayback Machine, it was all the way back in, I think, 2013. I attended the Catalyst Conference, and he opened the conference with a spoken word piece. And I was not familiar with spoken word as an art form, but I was absolutely just blown away by him and immediately became a fan and began to check out his music. And then it's really been a, what's it now, eight-year-long journey of listening to his voice, listening to his perspectives, and being challenged by them. And it's really helped me change as a person and really attempt, at least, to understand the Black experience in this country. Just a lot of his work, a lot of his music, spoken word, and the podcasts that he's involved in have just really helped me gain a lot of empathy in ways that I had no way of doing otherwise just because of where I am situated in our culture. So he's just a very powerful presence. He's someone really fun to listen to. We just had a really good conversation with him. 
and I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, and I came across Propaganda or Prop probably close to the same time, maybe a little bit earlier. I was a big fan of the artist The Cray, who's won a Grammy for his work and is one of the most preeminent hip-hop artists who's also Christian. And he and Prop have done some collaborations on songs. And one of the favorite songs that they've done is a song called Gangland. And I think one of the Church Clothes albums that Lecrae put out. And so that's how I became familiar with his work, his spoken word pieces embedded in other hip-hop songs. I appreciate the angle that he comes from and the lens that he uses through his art and the way he's able to kind of explore different aspects of what it means to be a person, really. I think that's what his work is about, kind of illuminating different angles of looking at personhood, identity, blackness, culture. I mean, he's really able to bring you into an experience through the way he articulates his stories. Yeah, and for those of you who pay real close attention to our podcast, we actually interviewed his wife. That was Dr. Alma Zaragoza Petty in our interview with her about the Prickly Pear Collective and about trauma-informed kinds of things. So not only is he a black man, but he's in a biracial marriage and just brings a great perspective from that lens too. And he talks very openly about the things that he has learned about Latinx culture in his life through his marriage to Dr. Zaragoza Petty. So again, just really illuminating and it's a way to access lives that you otherwise may not have access to. So I can't highly recommend their podcasts enough the primary one we're there together is called the Red Couch Podcast. And of course, you know, you need to listen to ours first and foremost. We, we need to be your priority. But if you're going to get a secondary podcast, of course, you know, check out the Red Couch. Yeah. And naturally, we're going to make sure that they are competing to see whose interview with us gets more downloads. So feel free to take part in that voting process. We'll send them weekly reports just to know who comes out on top. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So with all of that said, we're going to get out of the way and just let the interview be what it will. So please enjoy this interview and conversation we had with Propaganda. Welcome back, everyone. We are sitting down with Propaganda, also known as Jason Petty. And as his website states, he's a poet, political activist, husband, father, academic, and MC. So lots of things going on over there. Yeesh. Yeah, it's weird when you, it's weird when you're sitting here and somebody's reading it to you. You're just like, uh, this sounds so silly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I've been following your work for a while, Prop, so I, yeah, I, I know it's accurate, which is, uh, yeah, which is what's great. Thank you. But brother. thanks so much for being here, man. Yeah, man. I'm honored, dude. I love you guys. Love what you guys do. Appreciate that. Yeah, man. So yeah, we wanted to sit down and talk with you really just about storytelling. And I know that's a very, very broad piece of subject matter, but following your work and knowing how important to you words are and stories are, mm -hmm. just talk maybe a little bit about the importance of storytelling just in your life and work at this point. And then maybe we'll talk about some translations and applications in a bit. Yeah. So hmm, my life and my work. Yeah. You know, my formal training was in like in visual arts and social science. So like history, illustration, sociology, all that stuff. And even in my theological training, the way I like to start off the idea of storytelling is this, is like, if as a person of faith, I mean, pick a faith, you know what I'm saying? Like any of them, but for the sake of this discussion, let's say our faith, right? As a somehow or another Protestant or even Catholic Christian, whatever a Semitic belief, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Any of them, right? 
when the question arose as to how God planned to save humanity, the answer was Exodus. Where there was this family, right? And this man who believed that his wife was barren and they would never have children. And then God promised them that he would be the father of many nations. But then that nation gets, you know, conquered and moved to slaves in Israel. And then there was a series of plagues because he raised up this guy named Moses. And then Moses was there to release these captives. And there was a series of plagues. And then when the death angel was going to wipe out all the firstborn kids, you put up some blood on the top of your door and somehow or another that saved you. And then they all left at night and then the armies chased them and then the ocean parted or the sea parted and then it drowned the chasing army. And then they wandered this desert for like 40 years and then they found this land and uh, that's how God's going to save the world. So it's like, like <laughs> God breaks into story. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, oh word, uh, how did the, ancient Greeks understand, why does the sky move like that? Well, there's this God, right, who wakes up every morning. You know what I'm saying? So like every answer of all of society for the entirety of history started, was answered in story form. So I'm like, apparently that's something about like, you know, that's how we understand <laughs> the world around us. Maybe it's kind of important. Maybe it's kind of important, you know? And I think that, like, people underestimate the amount of the role it plays in their own life because it's so ingrained in the human experience, you forget to point at it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's almost weird to point at it because it's just something as normal as breathing. But when somebody does point at it, you go, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's literally how I understand everything. You know, I'll say, uh, yeah, you understand. There's a saying among like just scholars and theologians that like you have the idea of the knife and the deep soak. So like the knife where something cuts into you, you know, to get in, that's like the linear way of understanding knowledge, the thesis, you know what I'm saying? The point by point A, B, and C. And then you have the deep soak, which is like the sunbathe, you know, how does vitamin D get into your body? I can't point at a moment you go outside and it soaks inside of you, right? That's how the sun gives us the vitamins we need. It just soaks in, right? And story is that. Where well, there's nothing I can necessarily, why do we still talk about Star Wars? You know what I'm saying? Why is the Lord of the Rings still matter? You feel me? There's no, I can't point at anything in it except for, the deep well of how we just understand truth. We understand truth through story. I mean, could I really explain to you dark matter? Like, would you really understand it if somebody told you what dark matter was? How does substitutionary atonement work? Like, what did the cross accomplish? What were the molecules doing? No one knows. We just know. <laughs> I don't know. What is transubstantiation? No one knows. We don't know what it is. We just know the story. So in my mind, it's like, well, that's how we all work, you know? So, and I enjoy the process of making story and the creativity of it. So in my mind, it's like, it's as normal as breathing. It's when we want to understand anything about the human experience, the best way to understand it is story. Mm -hmm. 
I think you just destroyed my entire seminary education around preaching. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, as you were talking about that, I was just reflecting on how we've approached faith, at least in the kind of conservative upbringing that I had, of how it's a world of concepts and ideas. Yeah. And you got to get these concepts and ideas across and break it down in terms of logic. And you got to break it down in terms of arguments and you got to break it down in terms of points. Yeah. Yeah. The notions, the notions, you got to get the notions right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like in preaching class, like you throw a bone to the people listening from time to time that, you know, throw in a story because that'll bring them back in. But it's like, it's like, no. Yeah. The point is the notion. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I mean, what Bible are you reading? When Jesus was asked questions, how did he answer it? Stories. He answered in a story. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I don't, I was like, what do you want me to say? Like the guy understands the world this way. You know, mm -hmm. he starts, he breaks into a story and then leaves the story alone. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can only think of twice when he actually, ex once really, when he actually explained himself. And it was the parable of the sowers. Mm -hmm. Every other time he don't explain himself. He just leaves the story alone, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just think it's that sort of notion that gives the malleability, the eternalness of the transcendence of the truth he's trying to explain to where it's like, it's so malleable. It's so ready to be adapted and retooled for every generation and every culture because it's just a story. It's a story of the human experience. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? When you start nailing down notions, you now have to be cultural. You know what I'm saying? So that means that like some of the nectar is being lost because you're looking for the bullet points. Mm -hmm. You are going to lose part of the nectar. And furthermore, <laughs> that approach that you're talking about, about bringing up the notions that's the enlightenment. And for a people that believes they're not a subject to the culture and they don't let the world lead the way they think, you sure are explaining your whole hermeneutic based on, you know, post-rational enlightenment thought. Mm -hmm. and, and none of them believed in our God. But, you know, but you're using their tools as the set tools as the way to understand the faith we exist in. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, the, the idea that yeah. we want to avoid cultural captivity at all costs, but Enlightenment's Western, yeah. you know, Christian faith traditions have been captured by Enlightenment philosophies. They're birthed out of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if anything, I'm just like, have a little self-awareness. It's fine. I'm just saying, just be aware, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you got to have a context. Everybody has to have a context. Everybody has a context. At least understand yeah. your context. Exactly. Prop, can you think of a, a particular story or a moment in which you were gripped by a story and you could feel the ground of your understanding begin to shift, even if subtly? Is, is there a moment or a story that kind of takes you back to that, that place? Wow. About anything? Anything. Anything. I'll give you an example while you're thinking. Okay. For me, there was a, a young woman who grew up here in Indianapolis, central Indiana. She was brought here by her family from Mexico when she was like five. Yeah. Grew up here, graduated high school, had two kids and a husband. And then her husband gets pulled over one day for having a broken taillight out on his way to work. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have papers on him. He gets locked up for two months in a detainment center in Chicago before being shipped to Mexico and then she has to report to these weekly check-ins where she could be arrested and deported each week. And she just doesn't know, doesn't know what's going to happen to her kids. And it was in kind of hearing about her story, hearing her tell it, seeing the tears she cried, being with her at the check-ins, like 
that made this debate about immigration for me yeah. much more real. Yeah. It moved it beyond ideology and politics. It was like, nah, this is this is a life. This is a family. This is it's different, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's dope. I think some of it is for me, yeah, it's like a lot of the things that kind of like shook the ground for me were like, yeah, meeting people. So they were my experience with that person. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And then, yeah, hearing them sort of articulate the life that they've kind of walked through. I think it was there's I think two of them stick out the most. One was like my time with sort of Native Americans in indigenous communities. The first tour I ever did was all on reservations with this artist, Mm. you know, called Red Cloud. And in different moments of these people articulating how any of this happened, how they understand the world. Yeah, it's like the ground shifted. You know what I'm saying? One was like, yeah, just the idea, like, you can't own land. Like, it's, well, it's, how do you own the ground? Like, it's, we didn't make it. What are you talking about? So then when they start talking about people saying, hey, they want to buy the land from you, you know, the natives are like, well, I mean, it's not mine to sell, but I mean, go off. You want that tree? How about this rock? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And it's like, what are you talking about? You know, so them articulating why it was so ghastly. You know what I'm saying? And then there's, I forget what book it's in, but there was one like native elder was saying, I don't understand why they're taking what we would have just given. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, why? I don't understand. You know, so when you hear them articulate, like just how baffling it was, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, my whole ground shifted in that same note. Uh, talking to another Native friend about reparations with the Black community. Obviously, I'm a son of a Black Panther, so, like, I'm very well-versed in my own experience in the history mm-hmm. of Black people. You know, when he said, you know, you ever thought about how reparations sounds to an Indigenous person? Mm-hmm. Like, that you, you're demanding 40 acres? That's not even their land to begin with. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not their right. They don't have the place to give it. Like, that's ours. Yeah. So why do you get it? You know what I'm saying? And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. So hearing and seeing some of those things like really shook me. And then I think another one would be like sitting down and talking to like becoming an actual really good friend with like people from the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And then those of faith that were like a homie who I was loved dearly and was like, really struggling with addiction, you know what I'm saying? And getting in and out of rehab. And then this person finally saying, yo, the grip of this, when they finally was able to get free, there was like the grip of this addiction was hiding my sexuality mm. from mm. my church community. Wow. It was such a burden on me that I was like, it was killing me. You know what I'm saying? So when you hear in like the 11, 12 years fight to try to pray to gay away, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. All he was going through, like, when you hear that stuff, it's like, I, yeah, the story, him telling me his narrative for the past 10, 15 years, yeah, you're like, there's no bullet points. Yeah. What am I going to answer you with a notion? Like, right. but, 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 you know what I'm saying? It's like, there, I, what do you say, man? You're looking yeah. at living and breathing human in front of you. I'm telling you what's, what's happening, you know? It's right. funny that you would bring that up. Like, I'm rambling, but. I feel like it's good stuff, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. No, it is. And it feels like what you're getting at is this idea that storying narratives have the ability to communicate a depth of truth 
that we cannot always access with our logic and our reasoning, right? Yes, yes, that's my point. You're pointing at it, and it's going to, if anything, trump any other notion yeah. that you have. Like, you know, I'm looking around at, like, the world around us, you know, some of these, like, far-right extremist movements that are, like, you know, denying the Holocaust. And I'm like, there are people alive that were there. Yeah, what are listen. you talking about? Just, like, just yeah. <laughs> that fool grandma was there. Like, yeah. what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean it didn't happen? Yeah. They still alive. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, how, <laughs> what, what notion? Holocaust is fake. It's, it's, it's a conspiracy. It's like, that person still got the tattoo mm -hmm. from the train. Like, what is you? So that like story, you know, that lived experience, the human experience is like, I don't care what thesis you got. Yeah. This fool's grandma, she's sitting right there. Like, what? So, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. And it goes to the point that that person who's a Holocaust denier is listening to a story. Yes. They have a narrative. Yes. And it's coming from their community, but it's just a narrative that happens to be counterfactual. Yes. And it's a matter of, you know, we are able, especially in our society, and especially if you're white, educated, and wealthy, you can separate yourself from all other segments of society. So true. And in your neighborhoods and in what you're doing. And then when you hear stories from outside of your experience, your own community and culture has a counter narrative that just reinforces itself because you've not experienced yeah. other people. You know what? You you really said a mouthful there because, like, it really got me thinking of, like, why conspiracy theories are so powerful. Mm. And it's because it's the story that despite any and all evidence otherwise, like, point by point evidence that this is not true, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. The facts are not the point. You cross a line where the narrative, like you said, the importance of story and the power of story, the story is so central to you that despite any and all evidence otherwise, and even the fact that the story that you're believing in is actively working against you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's actively damaging you and your family. The story is so powerful that none of us are willing to let it go because it's so central to your identity. You know what I mean? So when you ask me about the importance of story, I'm like, well, well, there it is. Yeah. It's the strength of conspiracy theories. Stories are that powerful, you know? Real talk. <laughs> and I don't know if this will make the episode or not, but real talk. Do you two ever get scared that like everything that I think is true is not because... <laughs> Oh, hell yeah. Because I'm just listening to a narrative that I've heard and that the people around me believe. <laughs> you better put that in the pod because I absolutely freak out sometimes where I'm just like, wait a minute. You know what I mean? I used to, you know what's funny? I used to watch Ancient Aliens. Remember that on uh, our History Channel? Yep. And I used to watch it to be able to debunk it. Yeah. Right. So I'd be like, OK, I want to see where the guy jumps off the cliff. Yeah. Where are you building this like historical evidence, archaeological evidence? And where's the jump in logic? Yeah. You know, so I could point at it and find it funny. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'll be like, OK, that's funny. This is why this is so entertaining. But like 35, 45 minutes in, you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> you're taking notes, doing calculations. Uh, like, actually. And dang. <laughs> is this fool on to something you know what i'm saying <laughs> so yeah like i definitely have those moments where i'm like oh my gosh 
whoa, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know better than I do, Prop, but I sometimes worry about my boy Jesse Carey because he spent so much time in that kind of stuff. He loves <laughs> it. It's so fun to him. But at some point, I know his brain is going, well, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But you bring up a good point with that question, Matt. I think a lot of people are scared to get to that point of questioning and wondering if what if what I believe is not true. Yeah. Your question brought me back to first semester of undergrad and, and where I was taking courses on the history of Christianity. Yeah. And that's when I was confronted with that. I was like, oh, man, like what I thought I believed about my faith is not true. What do I do with that? Yeah. And a lot of people don't want to get to the what do I do with that portion? So I think a lot of people don't want to get there. They don't know what to do when they're confronted with that realization. And so I'm wondering if you are a pastor or a leader or a mentor, how do you use story to help people confront the tension and the fear that can be in that moment of having to unpack and rewrite the narratives that they have been holding? How do you help them through that with story itself? Yeah, man. I think you bringing that up with your faith is very important because I think anybody who's like truthfully truth-seeking, truthfully honest about where they are in their faith had to have had that moment when you were like, uh, the stilts, the scaffolding, the stuccos breaking, you know, and it's scary. You know, I think the best thing that I ever did was let it break Mm -hmm. and, and just trust that what is truly real and transcendent will last, you know, And as a matter of fact, bringing it full circle, what stood true was the story. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And what the story was communicating. I always like to say that, like, the story communicates a truth far greater than the words for which it's being driven in. When you step back and go, you know, Genesis chapter one was never meant to be seen as like surveillance camera footage. When you just go ahead and let that go. So then what is this trying to communicate? Well, it's trying to communicate beauty, purpose, function, and intentionality. Life has purpose is what Mm -hmm. you're trying to communicate to me. And I'm like, that's actually what I really want from it all, right? And it's like, oh. So for me, yeah, like how as a leader, that's what you're navigating through. It's like, what is that deep soak? What is being communicated to me? You know, and you let that be the point. You know what I mean? Or at least the thing that's like you're gripping to. And I found that like with that, then the hills that I'm willing to die on just became much less numerous. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I'm just like, this does not crumple me, whether Noah was a real person or is Adam actually a proper noun or a species you know what i'm saying like you know what i mean like it that's you're like oh that's not even the point you know you know did did moses write deuteronomy well he couldn't have because he was dead in verse one you know what i'm saying and then you're like oh i never thought of that you know what i'm saying that ain't stopped tupac (laughs) yeah yeah was he Pac? yeah he wrote it after he was dead like what is you talking about you know what i'm saying then you're like oh because the author ain't the point like that's not the point you know So, yeah, I I think that, like, in my mind, like, just, yo, let it, let it go. Yeah. It's cool. 
Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I think unless and until you have walked into that liminal space and like crossed over the threshold and had to do the hard work of letting a thing go, you can't actually walk with someone else that's in that painful space. You're not going to be able to connect yeah. with them. You're not going to be able to offer that insight. Yeah. Because really, it's not so much about passing on wisdom as it is about sitting with people and sitting with them in the midst of those hard emotions and feelings and just letting them know that that they're not alone and that it's going to be okay. The scaffolding will fall away. And guess what? Yeah. You can still be standing afterward. It doesn't feel like it now, but but you can still stand, you know? Yes. Yes. Facts. Scaffolding falls away, dude. Prop, just in your experience and from the standpoint of a storyteller, someone who tells stories, where have you seen storytelling used well in congregational spaces? Man, I mean, in the historic black church, for sure, has been, at least in a Christian space, I feel like has been probably one of the most well-used congregational space. I would say kind of to our shame in more of the Eastern traditions, you know, they, uh, you know, whether it's Confucianism or Jainism, they use story very well in the congregational space. I think the, you know, African practice of like the griot, you know what I mean? That's like, they use story very well. I think, again, back in my Native American experiences, like the medicine man in their community is really the storyteller. You know what I'm saying? Like in a lot of tribal experiences. So they're like, this is medicine. The story is the medicine. And like, again, one of those earth shaking when you're just like, oh, oh my God. You know what I'm saying? Like that the narrative is the medicine, you know? blows my mind but to bring it back into like more of a like our sort of lived experiences yeah like the old black baptist preacher they use story very well you know sometimes it's like historically speaking you know black people not being allowed in seminaries so not having the formal training of how to you know air quotes how to preach you know what i mean and deliver a sermon to where or even understanding greek and hebrew and they just read the narrative and found themselves in it mm. and then articulated that to the room. You know, obviously this isn't a utopian perfect experience because obviously like every other black church got a trillion problems, you know what I'm saying? But I think that that's what, when I look back at like my lived experience, like when I think about who were the most sort of God-fearing, godly people I knew and it was like, great grandma, you know, great uncle Billy Ray, you know what I'm saying? These people with like third and fourth grade educations, you know what I'm saying? Who just had a lived understanding of what the scriptures were trying to communicate to me. You know what I'm saying? Who couldn't tell you, couldn't tell you, you know what I'm saying? Some of them could, some of them just loved reading, you know what I'm saying? Like my Aunt Fannie Mae, I'm sorry, they, they from Texas, you know what I'm saying? My Aunt Fannie Mae, she, the lady, I don't know nobody knows scripture better than her, you know what I'm saying? But others, like my grandmother herself, like she wasn't, she was cussing, you know what I'm saying? She a pack and a half a day, uh, you know, cigarettes, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, yo, I just don't know anybody that just embodied what these things were trying to tell me about how to live a life, you know, pleasing in the eyes of God that like, yeah, it was her, you know what I'm saying? And it was just, you find yourself in the story, you know what I'm saying? Like, that was their hermeneutic. So to me, it's like, that would be the best example, I think, in a congregational space. It's like, that's what you would ask them. Like, what'd you preach on? What'd he preach on today? I don't know, but he was, you know what I'm saying? He sure did hum and moan. You know what I'm saying? He was preaching. You know what I'm saying? Because it's you captured something, you know what I'm saying, that I can't point at. But I knew it was true. 
you know? Yeah, and it just it, it strikes me as the difference between information acquisition and transformation. Yeah. That so Nailed much of the it. preaching that I grew up with was information acquisition. Yeah. That I am telling you truths and facts that you need to file yeah. away so that you can keep those in hand. But with storytelling and with certain types of instruction and teaching, you're transforming the hearer. Yes. And they may not necessarily be able to walk away and give you three points about what was so good about it. But yes. They walk away a different human being yes. because of what they've experienced. Yes. As long as my family been going to church, I can't name one sermon. Don't say it over however many years. we. I can't tell you one. I can't think of one. Yeah. You know, you go weekly. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't tell you one. But I know who they are. I can still tell you right now our pastors, how they met. I can tell you how they met. I can tell you how they fell in love. I can tell you they was engaged for two weeks. I still remember that. I remember that story. You know what I'm saying? I remember he was from Compton. She was from Laverne. I'm like, I'm telling you this from childhood. I still remember that story. You know what I'm saying? And what it meant about true love. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I remember that. Yeah. I'll do you one better. I've probably preached about a dozen sermons in my life, and I can really only remember one, and that was a narrative sermon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I also have a belief that we overblow the importance of sermons week in and week out. So I think, you know, hearing you say that, it just kind of reinforces my already embedded belief that sermon importance is probably overblown, but also that it's the one-on-one interactions, it's the hospital bedside visits, it's the conversations after church where you're also sharing stories, but maybe not the same type of stories. Maybe you're not pontificating on resurrection power in your everyday life, but you're still communicating deep truths and deep wisdoms and deep narratives about who you are, what you believe as a community. And those moments are at least, at least as important as that 15 minutes to 95 minutes, depending upon what church you're in, of a sermon on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So I think we can lose track of that sometime. Absolutely, bro. I think that that's like, for any preacher, I think that that's the little bit of self-awareness that I think would serve you well, is if you remember, like, no one's going to remember this. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know there are things I need to communicate, but like, this is one of many tools I have. You know what I'm saying? That's a necessary tool. Let's not forget the importance of at some point you have to just say to your children, this is how you wash a dish. You know, like there's instruction. Instruction is absolutely important, you know, but it's one of many things. I think you're right. Like when we elevate it as the primary paramount way is when we start getting in trouble, you know? Mm -hmm. It also occurs to me as we think about storytelling, the importance of, and I'm using this just because of the context that I come from, but storying Jesus, right? Like having a picture, for instance, of a black Jesus in the sanctuary, as soon as I see mm. it or a dreaded Jesus, I'm like, okay, this communicates different layers to the story of Jesus yeah. that this community holds that another community may not hold. And how you story Jesus is going to influence how you then story the gospel yeah. and how you then live out that gospel day in and day out. And, yeah. and I think we overlook that sometimes. We just, yeah. especially in white congregations, we talk about Jesus not realizing the Jesus you're speaking about, he sounds a little bit different than the Jesus. That, yeah, that I don't know that about. guy. Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to hang with that guy, yeah. man. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it, dude's super arrogant. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, man, the image you have in your head, I remember somebody challenged me to be like, hey, close your eyes. What does God look like? And I was like, oh, yeah, he 
looks like a long haired white dude. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't like that, man. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I don't need him to look black per se. I just realized, yeah, no matter who you are, you have an image of him. You know what I'm saying? And like, and that's, again, one of those realities that as a congregation, you're right. Like you should be very careful of and purposeful about, you know, rather than just kind of like leaving it to a default setting just because of where we live and the time we live, the default setting it's an angry white dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and it speaks to then also beyond story, the importance of symbol, which yeah. I think also Enlightenment culture lost. Yeah. And we take certain symbols for granted. And to an earlier point you made, Prop, that whatever image you have is fine, but make sure that you've interrogated that image. Yeah. So that you've owned it and thought through it and said, yes, this is an image that I want to have, an image that is appropriate to have. Yeah. And not just what's been handed to you from a tradition that may or may not have thought about it. Absolutely, man. Yeah, that's beautiful. I do like the idea, like, from, again, from some of the more, like, Eastern traditions that try to, obviously it's not a one-to-one ratio, but try to get, culturally speaking, their idea of the divine to be something so much greater. You know what I'm saying? Something that is sort of, like, more encompassing whether God is the wave, God is the ocean. I'm not saying like adopt that stuff, but I think ultimately what we're trying to say is like, yeah, like your imagination is limiting. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not thinking transcendent enough. You know what I'm saying? And I think that like I have really attempted to do that, to be not so concerned about the parts of the tenets of our traditions that are different in the sense that like what makes us unique as to like again rational thought like why are we right and they wrong that's not my concern no more i'm more concerned with the bits that have shown themselves to sit above our cultures and traditions that have shown themselves to again be transcendent and be like i'm gonna hang on to that that part that is for lack of better term which i think is the correct term actually is divine you know what i mean and hold on to those so yeah so that i've interrogated my ideas and went man maybe i'm thinking too small you know what i'm saying maybe i am holding on stuff and it to me it's like it's the work of my life you know what i mean like i'm in no hurry i'm not trying to land on any conclusion i am trying to continually sort of grow and expand and be on this lifelong you know expedition of grappling with the human experience, you know? Yeah. Speaking of grappling with the human experience and storytelling, one of the reasons we're bringing this up is because you have a book coming out. Yes, I do. Tell us a little bit about this book and what you're hoping to do with this project. Yeah, big homie, Terraform. Yeah, Terraform, Building Livable Worlds. It's a collection of poetry and short story (laughs) essays uh, about this idea of terraforming which is a you know science fiction term when you find a planet the process of making that to be able to sustain life is called terraforming right so the idea is like well i mean if we look around in our culture civilization and actual earth it's becoming less and less livable you know and it's like it's kind of by our own hand well not kind of it is it's by our own hand so like whether we're talking interpersonal relationship, whether we're talking community, culture as an idea and a concept, we made it up. Like we, I think a lot of times we forget that, like we made all of this up. Language is made up. They're just sounds. We made it up. You know what I mean? Our institutions, 
socialists, communists, monarchies, democracies, they're made up. Borders made up like which they are inventions of the human mind, you know, and at some point we have to say to ourselves, is this really serving us again? What if we thought big enough to say everything that we understand is normal now, somebody made up, then maybe let's have the courage and the prophetic imagination enough to make up something different to make up something better. So this poetry is to like walk you through an examination of like, okay, so this is where we are. This is what we have. Here's where it's not serving us. Now let your imagination go wild. What could we be? And that's terraforming. So that's the book, man. It's really like, you know, I'm not trying to give you no answers. I am just trying to expand your imagination and say, yo, we can build a better world. You know, we can treat the earth better because, again, where the earth is now, that's on us. We did it. You know what I'm saying? So then let's do other things. Right. Obviously, a hot point right now, as is has been for the last hundred years, is the way we do policing. Police don't grow on trees. It's not in the nature. We made it up. You know what I'm saying? The way we do policing. We made it up. And if everybody in this situation is tense, if you're telling me that this situation, when police interact with community, they are so afraid for their life that their amygdala kicks in, your lizard brain is in fight or flight, so much so that you can't tell a taser from a gun. You know what I'm saying? So much so that after you yell freeze, you got one second before you pull a trigger. Okay, you are in crisis, right? So much so that when you interact with me as the civilian, I am terrified, right? So I'm in fight or flight, so I'm not thinking. So you're saying everybody in this moment is absolutely terrified. Then I get to go, the system's not working for us, right? We shouldn't all be in fight or flight whenever we come in contact with each other. Yeah. So then it doesn't have to be this way. Like, let's, let's make up something else. You know what I'm saying? Like, why are we tinkering with something we know is not working you feel me i think that that's what i'm trying to get at is like yo we can start over we can do it again we made up this already and it's failing us so let's make up something else so that's kind of the idea i love the concept because it frames a lot of what i talk about and people in my circles talk about but i hear an invitation in it right like the acknowledgement that we have created all this also carries with it a possibility that we yes. can invent something else, right? Yes. That we can use our creative potential and divine potential to imagine and then manifest a world that does work for all of us. Yes. And that's a beautiful invitation to offer. Absolutely, man. And that's, you caught it already. You know what I'm saying? It's like this invitation. As a matter of fact, the last chapter is called the possibility. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So you already in there. You know what I'm right. saying? It's like, yeah. <laughs> This is what I'm interested in. What's the possibility? And let yourself go like, like, again, think it too small. You know what I'm saying? Like, again, a stupid example is like going back to the police thing is like, I don't know why tasers are in the shape of guns. Right. They could be any shape. They could be any shape. You know what I'm saying? They have a handle, a trigger and a barrel. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, why? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, can y'all like think bigger? You know what I'm saying? Again, crime and punishment is real. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, they're like, well, one's light or one's yellow, one's this. I'm like, well, you're, I'm going to be generous enough to say, again, you're in fight or flight. Yeah. 
what if it's just not shaped? <laughs> Why is it shaped like a gun? Shape it. What if it's shaped like a pancake? What if, what if they're shaped like pancakes? What if it was a waffle? You know what I'm saying? Like just a flat disc. You feel me? And you gotta press the button in the middle for it. To, you gotta hold it flat and press the. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, what if it was that, right? And if you mistake this for a gun, then I get to go. Yeah, you don't need to be on this job. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's it. It's the possibility. And the thing is, like, we've done it already. Talk to somebody at some point 20 years ago that would believe that you could literally work any job from home. Right now, what we're living right now, this was beyond anybody's wildest imagination for millennia. We can keep doing this. Like mm-hmm. We can keep imagining. And how would you encourage people to cultivate imagination? Because I think that's at the heart of a lot of this, too, is that we've outsourced our imagination to people that we pay to create as opposed to looking within our own communities and saying, how can we as a community create and get people who have imagination to use that imagination for the benefit of this community? I love it. I actually have, at the end of every chapter, little exercises to do that in this book to where I'm walking you through the process, again, of examining what's around you already, right? Looking at what's working for you, being honest about what's not working for you, And then in my mind, it's a matter of like really taking in art, taking in story, taking in travel, meeting new people in as best way you can. You know what I'm saying? I'm not asking you to not be yourself, but I am saying like exposure to other things, I think in a lot of ways are the biggest imagination trigger. Just trying new stuff, you know, and doing things that I feel like one thing that's really helped serve my imagination is like on a practical sense, what are those things you like to do that you can afford to suck at that aren't at all connected to your identity or your career or feeding your children? You can just suck at it. You know what I'm saying? That like it may not ever make it on any social media. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing like that. It's just something that's like, I'm doing this, like we said, for the sole purpose of stretching my imagination. And I think that those things are like, to me, one of those practical things that I feel like anybody can do. You know, I planted succulents during the quarantine. I was like, I have never, ever, ever enjoyed yard work because, I mean, it was a punishment growing up. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you you acting up in school, you got to go outside, pull those weeds. You know, you got to go mow this lawn before you could go play your video game. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, this is hard work. I don't want to do this, you know? But I thought to myself, okay, you're a homeowner now, nothing else to do. This will earn me nothing. I want to figure out how to do it. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to take no classes. Maybe I'll look up some stuff on YouTube, but mostly like I'm going to trial and error this thing and just take my time. And I think that that so much has been so life-giving. One, it's been very health, helpful for my mental health, but but ultimately it's like that's the imagination expansion to where you're like, I'm making new neurological pathways in areas that like I never thought I would ever enjoy, you know? getting frustrated with the weeds and I'm like, I don't understand why are there weeds growing 
I put this dirt here myself. I dug this, put the dirt myself. I planted the seeds. Why is that there? You know what I'm saying? And just, and just like fighting with it, but I'm enjoying every second. So I just get out and pull the weed out. You know what I'm saying? Well, you uproot the thing and you're just like, all right, well, let's put other seeds there. And, you know, and just like, just do it. Find your thing. What's your succulent? You know what I'm saying? And, and again, I can't stress this enough. It's okay to suck at it. It's totally okay. Like, matter of fact, it's better if you suck at it. You know what I mean? And, and just, again, it expands your imagination. I read this article. It's also in the book about um, divergent thinking. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this stuff, but it's like if you give a person a paperclip, right? And say, how many uses can you come up with for this paperclip? And they say, most people can come up with eight to 10 uses of it. The people that are like, amazingly experts at it can come up with 200 uses, right? Jeez. And they said the people that were able to come up with 200 uses were kindergartners. <laughs> they said 95% of them were kindergartners. And then if you track them, every year they drop their ability by 15% mm. of ability to come up with something until you become an adult when you can really only think of 8 to 10. Because they're not... There's no rules. There's no rules. You know what I'm saying? So like, you can't unknow what you know. It's like, I know this is a paperclip. Once I know it, you know what I'm saying? It's done. That's what happens with us. We know what it is, right? But like, what do you do? How do you make yourself curious again? I think it's finding stuff you don't know nothing about. Hmm. Yeah, a friend of mine that's really great with language pointed out that the etymology of amateur means someone who does something for the love of it. Oh, that's dope. And so, you know, we tend to look down on and when we talk about amateur, we think that's a bad thing. And it's like, no, it's people who are doing things for the sake of their love for that thing. They're just not getting paid usually. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's just fun. There's no money in it. It's just fun. Prop, as we wrap up here, folks who want to connect with you, learn more about your work, your book, how can they find you? How can they connect with you? How can they follow you? Love it. So prophiphop.com. That's the book, the coffee, the poetry, the music, the everything. All my socials are also Prop Hip Hop. I have a podcast called Hood Politics that's on the, now I can tell y'all, that's on the iHeartMedia network. So it's like, I'm like, you know what I'm saying? I went corporate. You feel right. me? Uh, so so, uh, so that's uh, cracking right now, which started off is what I'm talking about. It started off as just like a creative. There's nothing to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, this is just fun where I just take these like silly hot takes on politics and just compare it to gang living. And then just kind of got good. at. I wasn't good at it. And then it just kind of got better you know and now it's income you know what i'm saying so now i gotta find another thing that's like right. just to expand my imagination you know what i'm saying but yeah so there's hood politics obviously a podcast with my wife called the red couch podcast which i believe by the time you're listening to this it will be in season so we'll be having episodes in the feed and uh yeah at the time of this recording you just dropped an album dropped a second album or a second ep so there's a terraform not only is it a book it's four eps the one that came out in april uh was terraform the people so at this time terraform the sky is out and it's seven new songs again processing the book it's all tied with the book so the people is a section in the book the sky is a section in the book the next one after this is called The Soil. That's a section in the book. And then the final one's called Possibility. That'll be at the end of the year. That's dope. Excellent. I love that concept. 
yeah man dude it's so fun man it's so fun thank you well thanks so much for being here with us prop we really appreciate your time and look forward to reading the book when it comes out yeah baby enjoy So as you mentioned, when we kicked off this episode, that was a very full interview. You know, we covered a wide range of topics, even within the larger umbrella topic of storytelling. And I had so much fun just engaging with Prop and you could see how his mind works. and You could see kind of the canvas that he was painting in his mind as he was talking. At least I could seeing him on video. But then you could also hear through his words, the different ideas he was connecting, whether we were talking about his work, Terraform, talking about how he was first introduced to storytelling, or talking about his experience being transformed by the stories of others. You could just see that this is a very passionate, lifelong journey and topic for him. I really appreciated that. And as we were discussing how we would frame this, you mentioned something you wanted to pull out that was like an invitation for folks and the difference between hearing a story secondhand and then engaging with the central character in a story. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, as I was listening back to the interview and the conversation, it was something that came up as you were talking about your experience of a woman that you knew who came to the U.S. when she was five and just some of the issues that had cropped up because her husband was undocumented and those kinds of things. And as I was listening to it, I was able to kind of put on my hat from 10 years ago when I had less empathy (laughs) for for other people. But listening to that, I could imagine someone listening to that story, and because it's being told secondhand and the emotion of the story is not there, then their propositions are kicking into place Mm -hmm. and they're saying, well, it's their own fault. They shouldn't have been here undocumented. You know, that's what happens when you break the law, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of the point that you were telling the narrative in a way that was just talking facts. But what you were describing was how when you know this person as a human being and see what happens, see the emotion and understand them as a real human being, That's what changed you. And I want to challenge our listeners that it's so important that this episode was about storytelling, which is important that we need to tell more stories and tell better stories. But to be able to tell those stories, we have to live the experiences that give us those stories, right? Because I'm convinced that the primary way that we change for the better, and if we want to get along as a society, we need to understand the experiences of other people. Now, that does not mean that we need to change our beliefs and values. It doesn't mean that we need to sacrifice what we believe to be true, but we need to be able to view people, even if we disagree with them as human beings, to have empathy to understand their stories, because even if we don't agree with their conclusions, we can understand how they arrived at those conclusions and therefore be able to live together with them as opposed to demonizing them and viewing them as other. I think that's incredibly important. So I want to invite the people listening. And one of the ways I wasn't going to share this because I know I did on another podcast, but I'm going to mention it again here. One of the ways that I have changed is paying attention to media, movies, television shows, music that are from people of color, 
that are written by them, starring them almost exclusively, and, and hearing the stories of people of color, because those stories help inform me of where they're coming from in life, and again, provides empathy and provides understanding, as opposed to demonizing someone as the other. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's a thousand percent valid. As a coworker and friend, I appreciate that you have challenged yourself to do that. And I can see the ways in which you are expanding and growing and filling out as a person and be more comfortable, even with who you are, through this process of engaging with the stories of folks that are different. And so it's cool to watch and to see that. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier about the difference between telling a story secondhand and living it. You know, and I mentioned in talking with Prop that that moment with this woman who was going through this immigration crisis changed me. It didn't change my ideology. It didn't change my political beliefs. I already had a set of beliefs around immigration. What it did, though, is it opened me up to a different way of experiencing and engaging with this topic. Because standing in her presence, seeing the tears that she cried, seeing her young child next to her, and knowing the fear that she had to be feeling as a parent going to these immigration meetings, like, I could not leave those experiences unaffected. And I think that's what you're getting at, that whether or not your values shift, whether or not your opinions or beliefs change about a thing, when you genuinely encounter the humanity of someone else, it moves you in such a way that enables you to hold the tension of your differing values and still walk alongside them for their well-being for their benefit. And I think that's what we have to do, especially if you're working in a congregation. If you're in pastoral leadership or clergy, you know very well your personal values may not align with the congregants you are called to serve. And yet, your call is to serve. Your call is to walk alongside, to help them live into their healthiest, most holistic life. And so I think a way that we can do that is by accessing the stories and letting a story draw us beyond a belief system, beyond a rigid ideology, and into these threads of humanity that connect us all. And that's what that moment was for me. Yeah, it's really powerful when you are in the presence of someone else sharing their narrative and their emotion from that narrative. And as a further challenge, thinking about your sacred texts as stories and paying attention, I know for me, the Jesus that I was introduced to when I was younger, it was more about the propositions that he was espousing as opposed to the way he walked in the world. Mm. And I think that we need to recover the emotion of the stories in the scriptures, because that, I think, is fundamental. And it's not that we can't pull out propositions and theology and doctrine. Of course, those things are present. But I think we've lost the humanity of the stories. And some of the most powerful sermons I have heard are the ones that put you as a listener into the lives of the people in that story and then help you understand the lessons learned from it through that lens and not just, you know, three bullet points and, you know, a doctrinal stance. Yeah, well said. Well said. We have to humanize Jesus at some point. (laughs) I mean, that's true for any person, any prophet, any individual in our sacred text. We've got to remember all the aspects of a story and flesh out the fullness of the characters in said story because they illuminate something about the fullness of ourselves. Like That's what the narratives are designed to do, right? It teaches us not only about the divine, but also about who we are, the divine within us, how that works within our humanity, how we relate to each other. And if we can flesh out the fullness of a narrative and the characters within it, 
we're exposing ourselves to our own fullness and the fullness of those that we encounter each and every day. And that, I think, probably allows us to walk with a little bit more grace and love and care than we may otherwise do. Yeah, well said, Ben. You know, we have episodes sometimes that, at least for you and I, Matt, feel a bit more difficult to find resources for because of the topic or because of the interview itself. And this felt like one of them initially, but I think we were eventually able to find some resources that are good supplements to at least some parts of the conversation today. And so I'm wondering what resources you identified to bring to our audience today. Yeah, I want to share a book that was written in 2013, but it's still relevant at this point. It's called Shaped by the Story. And it's by an author named Michael Novelli. We actually had him come to Indiana to do workshops on the topic. And it's what he calls the art of Bible storying. So it is rediscovering the stories of Scripture and using that as the methodology for teaching about faith. And Michael was just really sharp. We really appreciated what he had to say. And he just had a lot to bring to the table. So I would recommend Shaped by the Story, which is the book. The subtitle is Discover the Art of Bible Storying as a really good way, especially if you are a Christian pastor or preacher, this could be something that would help supplement how you think about how you do your sermons and your speaking, or even those who are teachers, learning about Bible storying in terms of how you do, you know, your small group studies or your Sunday school curriculum. It could be really, really helpful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Matt. That is so true. Being able to rediscover the power of those stories is vital. And I experienced, you know, all the podcasts are running together now, so I don't know which episode I talked about this in, but when I was working with the youth group at the Mennonite church that I served at, I found that being able to kind of bring out a narrative was so much more effective at engaging them and making them interested and even hearing anything from the Bible when I could kind of pull out the story and bring the characters to life. You know, it's, it's an art form that I think we often forget about. Yep, absolutely. So what have you got, Ben? So I'm uh, going to go outside the box, which I'm sure surprises no one, and <laughs> <laughs> highlight someone that, that I encountered a few years ago. I had her on as a guest on another podcast that I host. Her name is June Caseworth, and she is a storytelling coach and life doula out in California. And her specialty is helping women of color in particular, who are also entrepreneurs, uncover the power and wisdom in their own stories, and then to use that power and their stories as catalysts to help grow their business and to figure out how they want to impact the world. And so as we're thinking about the ways that storytelling can be utilized and the ways that it can unlock the fullness of our humanity or the fullness of others, I immediately thought of June and her work as a coach. And so I offer her up as a resource you can check out. She has a podcast called Your Story Medicine. She also does coaching services for those that might want some one-on-one coaching. So check her out. Just being able to hear her story, I found to be incredibly powerful myself. And so even if you're just wanting to, like Matt said, listen to and engage with someone else who's different and hear their story, knowing that it's coming from a different perspective, if you're just looking for growth there, her podcast is good for that. And again, it's the Your Story Medicine podcast. But maybe you also know someone who might benefit from her coaching or you want to follow her on Instagram. Regardless, I think she's a rich resource on how to utilize storytelling to bring out the fullness in yourself and the fullness in others. And so that's what I'm offering today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Really appreciate that resource. Definitely more of a niche, but I think it'll be really helpful to some of the people who are listening. 
That reminds me of, and I'm going to bring another one real quick. It's called Story Brand. If anyone's familiar with Donald Miller, he wrote a book a long time ago called Blue Like Jazz, but he has created a marketing company. And I know a lot of people in congregational spaces, when they hear marketing, they immediately shut down. So, you know, you don't have to think about it in, in that crass way, but it's a way of understanding yourself as an organization and how do you tell that story in a clear and compelling way to the people that you want to join you as a part of your community or your congregation? So really, really helpful information in story brand. So I would really highly recommend that if you need to think about storytelling from the perspective of how do you talk about your congregation to the world outside, that's a really, really good resource to do that. We did this a little bit at the end of the podcast, but we just want to circle back to it and remind you of all the ways that you can access the great work that Prop is doing. So first and foremost, you want to go to his website, which is prophiphop.com. There you'll find access to his music, different blog posts, videos that he's been involved in. He has an affinity for coffee, which was a surprise to me. I recently learned this, and so you can learn more about his affinity for coffee and the partnerships that he's engaged in. You can also find information there about his book, Terraform, which is launching on June 8th. It's a collection of essays and poetry that Prop has put together designed to inspire us to create a more equitable world. So you heard his heart for storytelling in the interview that definitely comes through in the book Terraform. And so we just want to really encourage you, show him some love, check out that book. And if you're not familiar with Prop, then take this time to explore more of his music, more of his work, and kind of see his own evolution as it has played out publicly in his art over the years. Yeah, and again, I also recommend the Red Couch podcast, which is he and his wife talking about just culture, their lives together as a biracial couple. It's really informative and just fun to listen to their conversations about their relationship and about what's going on in the world. Yeah, and so we hope that you see and have heard from the interview and from these resources that storytelling has a multiplicity of uses, and it can be applied in many facets of your congregational life, of your leadership, or even your family life. And so we hope that you walk away reflecting on the power of story. We hope that you walk away being encouraged to seek out and genuinely listen to other stories and encounter the raw and real humanity of others when they offer it. And that you're thinking about the ways that you can utilize storytelling more effectively for your congregation, for your leadership, or in other aspects of your life. So with that said, you know, we'll just kind of wrap up here. And as always, we want to remind you, you know, I'm going to actually do this in reverse order today. So first and foremost, we want to thank the Lily Endowment for the generous funding that allows us to offer this podcast and to expose you to people like Prop and the other guests that we've had over the last year or so. So we appreciate that funding, and we really appreciate the work of our sound editor, Jaden Lee, who makes us sound amazing each and every week. So, Jaden, thank you so much for the great work that you do. Jaden's ball. <laughs> we also want to highlight, if you need more resourcing, you can check out thecrg.org, thecrg.org. CRG stands for Congregational Resource Guide. And it's a collection of between 1,500 and 2,000 of the best resources we've discovered on a very wide variety of topics. So it's kind of a Google search engine, but specifically and only for congregations and information from congregations. It is not a pay-to-play. Those are things that we have independently discovered and decided that we think they are really good for congregations, and that's why we put them up there. So you can trust that those are our best judgment on some of the best things that are out there for congregations to use. And shout out to the Associate Director for Resources, Kate White. She is the primary person who helps ensure that the CRG is up to date, and she's the one doing the majority of the vetting and the seeking and the finding of resources. And so if you have appreciated the CRG in any way, shape, or form, just know that Kate White is like the genius behind whatever you're appreciating. 
Well, and if you're going to mention Kate, you also have to mention Aaron Spiegel, who's our IT director, who's heavily involved in the mechanics of the CRG, and also Jane Maston. Carol Delf works really hard on that as well. So there's a lot of folks behind the scenes. Also, Ben McKibben. There are a lot of people behind the scenes making sure that that website functions well, and they're constantly updating and upgrading it. So a whole team is behind that, and we're really proud of them and the work that they do on the CRG. We should do like a whole podcast just highlighting the dopeness of various staff members and what they do. I think that'd be fun. Man, that would take like two or three episodes. I know. Because we are so dope. We're just amazing. For <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough self-aggrandizement. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram at the Center for Congregations. We post resources, congregational highlights, so that you can see the good work that is happening in Indiana congregations. We also post information about our upcoming education events that you can plug into those if and when you're able. So be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And also be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating or review. That is the quickest way for new listeners to find this podcast and to access the great information. So leave us a five-star rating, please. Thank you. And you can always reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We would love to hear from you. And again, I know that it might seem intimidating reaching out, but I promise you we are not celebrities. <laughs> well, speak for yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben's a celebrity in his own mind. That's but right. beyond that, <laughs> you know, the podcast is just a very small part of what we do, but we are here for you. I actually had a really great conversation with a pastor who wanted to reach out after the episode on Christian nationalism. And we had a great almost hour long conversation on a Friday, just chatting about the subject matter of that. And we're here to engage. We really would love to hear from you. So if you have thoughts about episodes, if you have episode ideas, if you have people who you think we should interview, we would love to hear that. So podcast at centerforcongregations.org. And I, ch- I check it every day. And I'm really sad that there's never anything in there except for spam. So, so hit us up. So thank you all again for joining us on another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. We appreciate your support. And as always, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke. We'll talk to you soon.